The ABC's Word Wizard, the Lord of Language. A word in your ear with Professor Rawley Sussex. It's time to uh, welcome and say, actually, thank you for joining us in a very genuine sense because Professor Rawley Sussex is... uh, overseas at the moment, but joining you through the uh, marvels of technology, Professor Rolly Sussex, good morning. Good morning from Macau. And uh, could you give us a little weather report from Macau, perhaps, Rolly? Oh, um, somewhat overcast, somewhat polluted, because it always is in this part of the world. Uh, slightly sunny, it's 8am and cool, and uh, when I've finished with this program, I'll probably head for the gym. Fair enough. That sounds like a reasonably good plan. (laughs) Now, you were inspired by the Melbourne Cup this week and in particular the name of the winner. What about the the winning horse captured your imagination? Okay, well, vow and declare. Um, There aren't many horse names which have an and in them for a start. I'm not really a racing person. My main link with horses is through my daughter. Um, who who is interested in equestrian things. But Vow and Declare is a very unusual name. And, of course, Vow and Declare, the words mean almost the same thing. It is a phrase in English. There's about half a million in Google so that it's there but not huge. And it actually comes up in Dickens uh, in Our Mutual Friend so that it's been around for a while. But what is really strange is that the words Vow and Declare mean pretty much the same thing. And that reminded me that the language of the law has got lots of doublets, and the doublets consist of two words with and in the middle, and uh, sometimes there are even three, by the way, uh, things like null and void. Now, what happened was that in 1066, the Normans came over and beat Harold at the Battle of Hastings and installed Norman French as a language of administration and law, and a lot of old French words entered English at that stage and just hang around, hang around. So null and void is one, and both those words actually come from French. Fit and proper, right, there's another one, you're saying the same thing twice. Um, and an odder one is let and hindrance. Now, let is an old English word meaning um, obstruct in some sort of sense. And I've got probably 50 or 60 of these, which are common in the law, and and they really do, I think, speak to the fact that in, in the early days of English, not everybody spoke French very well. And so it was necessary to make sure that the people who were um, undertaking agreements understood what was going on. So will you cease and desist? And some of these, of course, are part of, part of everyday English, like aid and abet. And yes, the, the we had we had Vern things, we had know. Vern say uh, text in a, a couple or, or call in with a couple of yeah. uh, examples and aid and a bet was one of Vern's. Vern also mentioned mm-hmm. um, stand and deliver. Although to my ear that sounds like two yes. different things. Those those are different. There are some which are a bit different, um, but fit and proper I think is very much the same. Um, ways and means are different, and that's a that's a legal phrase because the the, the ways is probably more like paths to something and means more like goals, but not necessarily. Um, and uh, there are phrases, I, uh, there's one I really like, your goods and chattels. Now, the, these are the things which are not part of the fixed 
um, business of the house, you know, like walls and windows and roofs and things. But then you can have, and this is where it gets really interesting, chattels personal and chattels real. Now, when you get an adjective like personal that comes after the noun, it's not personal chattels, but it's chattels personal. You know for sure that it's come from Norman French, um, a bit like attorney general, you know, the general or governor general, the general is after rather than before. So your chattels personal are going to be your personal belongings, which are you no know, things like cups and chairs and stuff in the house. And your chattel's real, this real is like real estate, uh, can be freehold property or something like that. If there's a lawyer around who wants to in- explain chattel's real to us, please go for it. I'd love to know. But the, you know, the, the word order, chattel's personal, chattel's real, that's not the way things normally are in English. And it, it really lets us know that this has been borrowed from somewhere else. Now, when I was thinking about these, you know, two words together that mean um, almost the same thing, um, I used the word couplet, but I noticed you used the word doublet. So could you explain? I clearly went wrong (laughs) on that. What's the difference? Not badly so. Yeah, I I was just interested to be corrected on that. Yeah, all right. A couplet, if its main meaning is in poetry, and it means two lines which go together. And the term, term normally used in the legal books is doublets, because there are two things. A doublet, of course, is also something you can wear, but not that we do it very much nowadays. But doublets are these two terms which are strung together, usually with and in the middle. And there are some which are even three. Now, you wonder why they need needed three to make sure that the meaning was received. But give, devise, and bequeath. This is part of your will and testament. And that, of course, is another one, because the will part is certainly English and the testament is certainly French. Um, and um, I cancel, annul, and set aside, or I convey, transfer, and set over, and I grant, bargain, or sell you my car. And it, it's, you know, the language of law has got quite a few interesting features which are very often quite archaic. They've hung around, and the reason that they've hung around is that there is centuries of precedence. In other words, lawyers have agreed how to interpret these terms, and the fact that they have this long history behind them means that we now know exactly what they mean in modern usage. One of my favorite words is curtilage. Uh, do you know what your curtilage is? No, I have never heard of curtilage. I've heard of cartilage. I've never heard of yes. curtilage. 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 C-U-R-T-I-L-A-G-E. It means the house and the space around it, which, um, shall we say, in older French times, used to have a sort of a wall. So the, the house and the, the if you like, the, the close farmyard uh, with a wall around it. And the word is related to court. So you can get the idea of an enclosed space. Outside that, you might have fields and fences and stuff, which are also part of your property, but not part of your curtilage, which is the house and the bit immediately around it. And if you are buying a house, you might have a lawyer who talks about your curtilage, even nowadays, which is really nice. Um, Now, how is your curtilage doing? (laughs) And by the way, while we're talking about order, one that, that really fascinates me is, if you say Mr. Justice Smith and you're writing it in legal language, you write Smith and then a capital J. Now, you say justice before, but you write it J after. 
and uh, CJ would be Chief Justice and P would be President of the Court and so on. And all of those initials come after, even though we pronounce them before. It's a bit unusual. Is it tautology, which is which means that you're saying um, something that's unnecessary because it's already been covered by another word that you've said? Yes, but an even better word is pleonasm. P-L-E-O-N-A-S-M, pleonasm, which means that you're just repeating yourself. Um, so sale and transfer, for example, power and authority, null and void again, part and parcel. Um, these were originally legal. Uh, the, the interesting thing, like law and order, is that some of these have actually become part of everyday language and we don't really know anymore that they began in the language of the law. What about hue and cry? That's another one. Oh, right. Of course. Mm. There are there are loads, and yet I'm not having a full understanding of the meanings of all of them. You don't no. understand how many are unnecessary. <laughs> Correct. But no, the, the traditional language of the law actually gives us a lot of certainty about how key terms are to be understood and employed. And that's really good because a lot of ordinary words in everyday language, say mouse, you know, acquired a whole new series of meanings when computers came along. Whereas in the language of the law, the, the long tradition and the, the tradition of the law which sits behind it uh, gives us certainty about what it means. Something which is very distinctive about the language of the law is low punctuation. Um, the, and this is for two reasons, apparently. One is that uh, the, it would have been possible to, shall we drop in a comma or something after the document had been signed to change the meaning. And so it was, it's very difficult to alter words in a document, say a written document. It's really easy to alter punctuation, which actually can turn things around. Uh, modern legal language has become rather more transparent, partly under the influence of the plain, plain English movement. And so it's got a bit more punctuation than it used to. But older legal documents just went on and on and on uh, without any, any punctuation until you got to a full stop. And this is another feature of the way you know, the the language is is manipulated in special ways to make sure that the the professional meaning is absolutely clear. Yes, you don't see professional legal emojis, do you? Although I wonder <laughs> what how long that could be. It could be before that's uh, <laughs> that's employed as well. Yeah. Well, here's another one: the the O R words and E E ones. You know, who's doing what? Now, if you're a mortgagor, now mortgage is, mort is the French word for death, and gage is the French word for pledge. So if you take out a mortgage, you're kind of pledging your life when you borrow money. And the person who lends you the money is the mortgagee. Now, we, we tend to think around, about it you know, around the other way, because someone who does something is OR, and something who has it done to them is EE. And in, we think, oh, well, the bank's lending me their money, the money, so they're going to be the mortgage or it's round the other way. Because uh, it's about so the pledge remember. in that word. Is that right? That's the, right. The, the yes. pledger as opposed to the, the pledgee. That's it. That's it. And, and remember next time you take out a mortgage that you are, in fact, putting your life on the line. Um, now, the lessee, for example, this is the other way around. This is the person who holds the lease of a prop. Sorry. It is. It, that's right. It is the same way. The lessee is the person who holds the lease. So you have signed something saying, I want to use someone's house and I'll give money for it. And the lessor is the person who's actually lent it. So you, again, you, you need, this is why we need lawyers, because they need to be able to tell us how to interpret the documents.
Well, thank goodness for them too, because um, it's an awful lot to wade through. And sometimes you need to have the the very succinct explanation of meaning, uh, which, yeah, which I think is uh, very... um, I'm very gratefully received. I'd rather not have to do all of the years of legal training to figure it out. I just want someone to tell me what it means. Um, Well, I mean, there are some some really old words which are lovely. There's a word, estoppel, E-S-T-O-P-P-E-L. And estoppel is an old French word, and it means the court can stop you going back on something you've already said. In other words, if you change your mind, they they can say, that's not good enough. You've already said this, and that's what stands. But uh, it would be rather nice if we had a stopple in everyday life. There are quite a few situations where that might be quite helpful. There's no take backs. I think that's no take backs. Yeah, that's no. the Once more. Once you said it, that's the, what go. The the playground situation. Terry in Kabulcha has given us a call. Good morning, Terry. Oh, hello, um, Professor. I would like to know if there's any reason why, uh, and I'll use the word Victoria here for, for, as an example. Many lakes and rivers in. Uh, all over the world, called Victoria. Now, why is it called Lake Victoria, but if it's mm. a river, it's called the Victoria River? Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't always. It's sometimes the River Victoria. Um, rivers are really an, a, a pain in the neck because something like uh, the Mississippi, um, you'd never say the River Mississippi. It's always the Mississippi River. Um, but I think in Hobart, it's the River Derwent. It's the River Murray not the Murray River. Um, and for some reason, and I, I'm sure this is just historical, it happened and once it happened, everybody followed suit and it became the norm. You're quite right that rivers and I'm not sure about creeks. And by the way, in Tasmania, they also have rivulets, which are gazetted names, but they do have a the. Um, whereas lakes don't, um, and I can't think of a lake which does. So you've spotted something which is actually quite important. Thank you. Thank you very much for that observation, Terry. Mm. Appreciate that. If you'd like to call with a uh, an, a word observation, one three hundred triple two six twelve is the number, or you could text zero four six seven nine double two six twelve. Professor Rolly Sussex is uh, thinking about words, and in particular mm. legal words uh, today, doublets. Uh, if you like, where two words that mean almost the same thing but are used almost always in conjunction. And I'll give you another example. This is from the Oxford Dictionary of Law, so that's really quite authoritative. Now, the word consideration, um, in everyday life, I think that means that you're aware of the other person's, say, emotions, and you're being considerate and sensitive and so on. But in the, in the law, consideration refers to contracts, and, it, and I quote, an act forbearance or promise by one party to a contract that constitutes the price for which the promise of the other party is bought. Breathe deeply. These are the sorts of things which the definitions involve. But in fact, when you take it to bits, it's quite specific. And the fact that, as I said, you know, the, the tradition and the centuries of law behind it made it make it very clear. The trouble is that you and I are not party to that sort of language. 
And um, I think it's, it's really beyond what we'd normally even understand. Yeah, absolutely it is. Things. It's yeah. almost like in, oh, in yeah. church where, you know, it used to be Latin, you know, it's, it's very exclusive. Mm-hmm. And it feels, oh, it yeah. feels, uh, maybe it's just my attitude, it feels like it's intentionally exclusive and a bit annoying. Like I'm sure if you're a lawyer, it's more, uh, about, you know, being precise and understanding the, mm. the history and the, the, um, you know, the, the president of law, but sometimes it just feels intentionally annoying. And yeah, well, it's a bit, like, exclusive. bit like doctors, I suppose, because if you're going to have efficient professional communication, you need to be able to refer very precisely to the things you're you're talking about. And so, no, doctors will often use language which is pretty pretty obscure to the ordinary person, and yet to another doctor, it's exactly clear what's happening. And there's another example you mentioned Latin before. There's is habeas corpus. And habeas corpus means you will have or you must have the body. And it's a, uh, a rule which says that you've, you you can be required to bring the person accused in front of the court so that the, the judge can work out whether there's a case or not. So habeas corpus is, uh, you know, it's Latin and nobody knows Latin much these days. It's something which is actually quite quite obscure. But again, uh, it, it means that you can't sort of lock someone away indefinitely. Uh, the court can demand that they be brought forth and then they can work out whether the person has a case to answer or not. Ross in Samford has uh, an observation to make or a, a doublet to add to the conversation. G'day, Ross. Hello there. How are you? Good. I love your show. Um, Rolly, uh, I've noticed Ash, Bar- Ash Barty talking recently in interviews, uh, and I think she's mm-hmm. fantastic. I'm not having a oh, go yeah. at her, but she she uses the the, the term f- first and foremost a lot. Yes. I guess that's another example of, of a doublet, is it? It is, yes. And it's it's not only a doublet; it's also what's called an echo phrase. And these things, I've got a database of over six thousand of these which I've been collecting. If you think first and foremost, there's an F, F. And when you get phrases like that, like hoity-toity, namby-pamby, if there is a repetition of a sound, they become sticky in memory, and so we tend to pick them up and use them. And after a while, they become cliches. And that means this is something which is used so often that it doesn't really mean anything. And in the case of first and foremost, very much beloved by politicians, by the way, um, it, just, it just means first off, and you might as well say so. So I guess uh, but it's a habit. Higgledy piggledy. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I exactly. Yeah, you're on. And higgledy piggledy yep. other examples. Uh, if you look up echo phrase on the on the web, you'll find hundreds and hundreds of the things, and uh, they are part of the the to and fro of language. Some of them are really overdone, and I think first and foremost is probably. Um, a real cliche now, like in this day and age, and come to fruition, which don't actually mean anything at all. Uh, but uh, but, but it's handy if you need an extra two seconds to think of what you're actually going to say. Exactly. You, <laughs> you, f- you fill in the space with words. Yes, and you sound like you know what you're talking about. Uh, Trudy in Arana Hills has just a delightfully ironic situation to to share with us. Hello. Hello. Um, my son's cat came for a holiday, and he chewed through the tail on my mouse on the computer. Imagine that. The cat caught the mouse, but this time the computer mouse had chewed through the tail <laughs> of it. Very delightful. Trudy, you also had a question about the origin of a word. Which one? Bespoke. Bespoke. Where did ah. the word bespoke come from? Yeah, okay. It's from bespeak. 
And bespeak means to um, reserve something or have something done to order. And so it used to be bespoke with clothes, particularly men's suits. You, you, you went to Savile Row in London and, and, and ordered a bespoke suit. And it was made to measure. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you can have bespoke kitchens, bespoke bathrooms, various parts of houses and things, which are made specifically to the way you want them to be. In other words, they're custom designed. And the word bespoke is having a real uh, second life in the business of house renovation. Right. But it's a bit like boutique, isn't it? You know, you sort of think, yes. oh, how boutique is it really? <laughs> like, <laughs> just because you haven't done very many of them doesn't mean it's, you know, particularly fancy. I mean, maybe that's the cynic in me sometimes. Mm. Okay, here's some more language from the law, Latin again, in camera. Now, that literally means in the chamber, and it means something which is conducted privately and not in open court. So if it's in, in court, everybody can hear. If it's in camera, this is in a closed room where the judge might be having a, um, a, a consultation with some of the lawyers, for example. Um, on the other hand, in curia means it's in court, so it's, it's public. Um, in extremis, we use that occasionally, means in extreme circumstances and sometimes used at the point of death. In flagrante delicto uh, literally means in blazing offence. If someone is caught in the act of committing a crime, uh, sometimes, shall we say, in personal circumstances. On ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland, Chris in Mullaney. G'day. G'day. How are you going? Very well. What was your question? Oh, look... uh Rowley mentioned Tasmania a little bit ago when we were talking about rivers and dams and creeks and so on. There's a couple of rivers down near Hobart, the North Esk and the South Esk, where Mm. people tend to not use the word river at all. In fact, I wonder if the word Esk means river. Uh, No, it's it's a proper, it's a place name. Um, But um, I think... Um, if a river is big enough in your environment, you don't put the word river in because everybody knows what you're, f- what you're, um, referring to. So, you know, the Oxford and Cambridge boat race takes place every year on the Thames. You don't need to say the River Thames because everybody understands what the Thames is or the Seine in Paris. But, uh, you know, as, as Terry said before, they've got a V in front of them which marks them as rivers and not as lakes. Moving water. Rolly, it's been wonderful to have your company and your your great brain of words uh, once again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. Do you want a last word? Oh, yes. Please. Right, here we go. If, if the pen is mightier than the sword, then why do actions speak louder than words? <laughs> a wonderful conundrum. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful pleasure. time in Macau. We'll catch you again uh, next week here on ABC Radio Brisbane. Professor Rowley Sussex uh, with a word in your ear today and you'll hear his uh, word for the day pop up here on ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland as well. Queensland. 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 It's just an exciting place to live. Fantastic. ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland.